Hey, welcome. My name is Gavin. I'm a pastor for our church here. And a couple things. Can we just say thank you to the choir one more time? You guys did a terrific job. If I wasn't preaching, I'd have been up there. Uh, can we also say thank you to the kiddos? You guys did awesome. Hey, I do want to say welcome to the kids in the room. This is a family Sunday. Uh, it's a day when we don't have any city like kids. Instead, we want the whole family uh, in the room. And I always want to say that every week it's a family Sunday, okay? So moms and dads, your kids are always welcome at every city life function. And we just believe um, that uh, there is tremendous value to having kids in the room. Uh, and so I love it that my kids in the front row uh, can watch their mom and dad worship Jesus and and college students and high school students and people with gray hair and people with no hair, Chris, worshiping <laughs> Jesus and being a part of the collective family. And uh, I'm always amazed how much they can pick up from the sermon, too. It helps when your preacher doesn't know any big words. And so uh, that's me. Uh, and so just trying to keep it on that level. So kids, welcome. Um, if you get distracting and someone gives you a dirty look, that's why we have security. For the person who gave you a dirty look, we'll just usher them out. You kids are great. And so make yourself at home. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in verses 1 through 25 this morning. Uh, as it's been said, this is Palm Sunday. And so um, I got my Easter pregame on today. Next week is the main event. And uh, so buckle up. But, but this is where the church historically has celebrated Jesus' triumphal entry into the capital city, Jerusalem. And uh, this event, Palm Sunday, um, happened at the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, it was with great anticipation and, and expectation and fanfare and excitement that the people of God welcomed Jesus into the capital city. He comes riding in on a donkey. This is to fulfill the, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 that, that the Lord's Messiah, uh, the king that would sit on the throne of David, would come in riding on the donkey and the people celebrate uh, their their um, oppressors will be overthrown, and the ruler has come to sit on his throne. But what we watch unfold in the Gospels is that over this week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, what becomes apparent is that Jesus' kingship over and to his people is not a geopolitical leadership, but a spiritual kingdom. That Jesus comes in not just to overthrow the oppressive leadership of the Roman um, occupiers, but to overthrow the people of God's ultimate enemy, which is sin, death, and the devil. And he does it by going to the cross on Good Friday, which looks like a, an incredible tragedy, but then he's raised from the grave on a Sunday, which is the, the eternal triumph of our God, how he came to save his people and so today is Palm Sunday, and it's on Palm Sunday that we realize that God does not always give to his people what we expect, but he does always give to us what we need. Amen? And uh, sometimes in life, what looks like an amazing tragedy or trial or travesty, um, we know sometimes God, in fact, in due time, always, God will redeem those things for good. Amen? It's not the sermon today. That was just free. So... Uh, <clears throat> do with that what you will. This morning, we're, we're actually going to fast forward. Rather than preaching the beginning of the week, which we traditionally would, that's found in Luke 19, uh, we're going to fast forward to the end of the week. Just in keeping pace with our Luke series, uh, we've been preaching through the book, and we find ourselves in chapter 23. So we're going 
We're going to actually take a a look at the end of Holy Week or Passion Week um, on the night of Thursday night and into Friday morning, wherein Jesus is arrested and put on trial. Uh, We see that Jesus undergoes three various sort of bogus um, trials uh, before various groups of people. And an interesting thing happens as Jesus is examined... Um, He himself is proven to be innocent, but the hearts of the people that encounter him are, in fact, exposed. Okay, we're going to look at three different people or groups of people that interact with Jesus on this trial. And we're going to see that as they um, seek to exercise judgment over Jesus or leadership over Jesus, that it's actually them that are put on trial and their hearts exposed. I want you to realize this happens in in every area of life. Isn't it true? Anytime you're in a position of leadership or judgment, a lot of times it's yourself that is exposed. Um, Various levels this happens. I know even in marital counseling, if I sit down with a, you know, a struggling couple, I'm I'm trying to minister to them. In the back of my head, I'm like, I need to go home and tell my wife I love her. (laughs) Like, I need to go on a date, right? We examine someone else's life and what gets exposed is our own heart. Um, We see this all over the place. Um, in, in, my, in my last house, we just recently moved, um, but there were some, um, uh, we'll just cut this out of edit so they don't watch it on the video. Um, we had some neighbors with small dogs, and um, I don't think our Lord created small dogs. He only created big dogs. I think small dogs are a result of the fall. So no, no condemnation if you're a small dog person. There is forgiveness for that sin, but... Um, so our neighbors have dogs and like a small herd of small yipping dogs. They pee in the house and, and bark at the neighbors and the whole drill. And uh, so that's, you know, you do what you, you got to do. But here's where, so the dogs would go out into the yard early in the morning. And what are little dogs? They yip, 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 yip. Okay, that's one thing. Now, the owner would, would seek to exercise some kind of judgment and control and leadership over the dogs. And so um, he would yell, shut up, quit barking, stop that, Right. And I remember many mornings where the dogs didn't wake me up at 5.30 in the morning. What woke me up? Shut up! Quit barking! You know? And so, in trying to exercise leadership over his children, what happens is he becomes the guilty one. He's waking the neighbors up. Let me give you another analogy. It happens in in parenting all the time, right? Uh, I took my kids to the um, Henry Dorley Zoo this summer, and we went to the IMAX theater, and there were some other little kids and a mom, and the kids were kind of out of control, but reasonably so. I mean, they're kids, and it's a theater, and they're kicking the seat and being kind of noisy, and to be honest, they weren't that distracting. But then the mom, you know, being rightly so, a judge over her children, um, actually becomes the most obnoxious one in the theater. Stop that! You're being distracting! Kids, cut that out! Quit kicking the back of his chair. I'm thinking, woman, I don't care about your kids, but you, just get out of the theater, Right? happens in my own parenting. The trouble with my kids, um, my son has a good vocabulary, and he's really sharp, and he's smarter than his dad, which is frustrating when he's six, you know? And so it's just, it's hard to kind of be a judge and examine him because you end up getting examined yourself. It's like, you know, Grady, eat your, eat your vegetables. Well, you didn't eat your vegetables. Well, that's not the issue right now. You need to eat your, you know... Quit yelling at your sister. Well, quit yelling at me. You know, you see how that happens. Anytime we examine someone, um, we ourselves get exposed. It's the nature of the deal. Okay, what we're looking at is Jesus, the only truly innocent one. The only one who, who doesn't serve to sit under anyone's judgment. And what happens is he's proven innocent, but we get a little insight 
into the hearts of the people who are going to examine him. And as we look at these three groups of people, here's what I want us to do, City Light. I want us to kind of cross-examine our own heart. Because I think in each of these three people, or three categories of people, um, we're going to find some commonalities where the Lord actually needs to work in our hearts. Because the same thing happens with us. When we encounter Jesus, we ourselves are exposed. And so I want to take the opportunity in Luke 23 in the moments that we have together um, to kind of do some evaluation and let the Word of God read into our hearts and what we might have in common uh, with the group of the people that we see here. And so we're going to look at three people or three groups of people. Um, I've summarized them this way. We've got the religious self-righteous, we've got the passive people-pleasers, and we've got the pardoned guilty. And so let's, uh, let's take them one at a time. Let's look at group number one. We're going to call them the religious self-righteous. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says this, Then the whole company of them arose and brought, before, uh, and brought him before Pilate. Okay, real quick, who is the whole company of them? In the chapter four, before, chapter 22, we learn that this is the elders of the people. The other gospels call them the Sanhedrin. And so this is a collection of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, these are the religious elite of their day. They are um, meticulously religious, devout people. And they have some jurisdiction and leadership, both in the temple and the worship of God, as well as civilly over uh, the Hebrew people or the Jewish people of the region. And what you find out uh, as you read about these guys in the Gospels is that these guys were very meticulous about maintaining the letter of the law. And so you've got various Old Testament um, restrictions and rules, and these guys were meticulous about um, even some of the most unique rules and regulations for God's people. However, they had by and large missed the heart of God altogether. And so you've, guys, you've got guys that are tithing out of, their, out of their pepper and their salt, but who have forgot that they are to love justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. They've latched onto the rules of God, but they have by and large part lost the heart of God. In the previous chapter, it's these people who under the cloak of darkness cowardly move in on Jesus and arrest him where they can't be seen by the crowd and they bring him before the Sanhedrin overnight and in the morning they have their first mock trial and they determine among themselves that Jesus is a heretic and he should be put to death. But they have a political problem because while they have jurisdiction to try some legal accounts, they don't have the jurisdiction to execute capital punishment and so they can't kill Jesus. They need to go to the Romans who are ruling over the area and so they take Jesus Jesus before Pilate, who has the legal authority um, to execute capital punishment on Jesus. And so they said, Jesus is guilty. We're going to bring him before the Romans, and uh, let's be gone with this guy. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him. That's before Pilate. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. There's three accusations there. Uh, three charges that they bring Jesus up on. Number one, we found this man to be misleading our nation. No, he wasn't. That's a lie. Point number two, uh, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. No, he didn't. In just a few chapters earlier, we see Jesus saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What do I care? Pay your taxes to Caesar. He has no political motivation. And number three is actually a twist uh, in saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Yes, he did say he was Christ, and yes, he was a king. But what they're saying to the insecure, control-happy Romans is that this man is a national security threat. He wants to th sit on the throne of Caesar. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. But they bring the charges before uh, Pilate. 
and uh, they don't like this guy. Um, so this is group number one. Let me, let me, let me just fast forward now. I've got 25 verses. Let me show you the four places that group number one shows up in our text this morning. Uh, take a look at the posture of the religious self-righteous towards Jesus. Verse 10. It says, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. They're on a roll. Verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. You think Jesus and these guys, like, go out for coffee and encourage one another, right? These guys are mad. This, this is like protesters at a Trump rally. Man, they're stopping traffic. I mean nothing political by that other than picture the scene. These guys want him dead. They do not like Jesus, and they're going to make it known to CNN and the whole world. Crucify this guy. Now, the question for us is, what has these guys so hot and bothered? What is it about Jesus that they would want his head and demand it vehemently. That's a great word. I don't even know what it means, but it sounds intense, right? Here's what we need to understand about this group of people. Uh, moreover, Jesus himself. Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. That was his ministry. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and he comes to forgive sinners. He comes to redeem those who had sinned, who were dead in their sin, who needed saving from their sin. Gospel of Mark, when Jesus steps on the scene, the very first word out of his mouth recorded in Scripture is repent. In other words, turn. Turn from your sin, sinners. Right? And so his message at first is very offensive. You need to turn from your sin. Now, who's Jesus talking to? Who are the sinners? Romans 3, 4, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So who is sinners? Everybody. And so Jesus' life teaching and ministry is really only good news if we can first come to terms with the fact that we are sinners. However, if you're a religious, self-righteous person who has wrongly convinced yourself that you are not a sinner, that you don't need grace, that you have kept the rules, that God must love you because you're basically a good person, then Jesus' life teaching and ministry is not good news. It's very offensive news. That's his first group of people. They're offended by Jesus. He comes and tells them, repent. They say, how dare you? And they kill him. That's this group of people. I'll summarize it this way. Self-righteous religious people see the world and the people therein in two basic categories. There are good people and there are bad people. Who are the good people? Well, they're the people um, that dress like them, act like them, believe like him, and behave like them. Well, that's convenient. Who are the bad people? Everyone else, right? So Jesus comes and says, repent. And they say, well, why? We're basically good people. Here's the deal. The Bible does say that there's basically two groups of people in the world, but it's not good and bad. The Bible says that apart from Jesus, there are bad people, and there are bad people who have been saved and redeemed by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Okay, there's two teams. We can pick one tribe, but all of us start in the same place. We are sinners in need of grace. And so Jesus steps onto the scene and he starts his teaching ministry. And he comes to the fornicators and the drunk and the loose and the prostitutes and the crooks and the ladies with bad reputations and the swindlers and the rebels. And he says, you're sinners. And they say, we know. Would you like to come over for dinner? We could use some help. We're really jacked up. And Jesus entertains their hospitality. Jesus gains for himself the reputation a friend of sinners. He loved sinners. They welcomed him. He forgave them and ministered to them. 
And he called them to repent of their sin, and they did, and they trusted Jesus, and it was a beautiful thing. And he comes to the religious self-righteous and says, repent, and they say, how dare you, and they kill him. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay, and that's what we see. To some, the message of Jesus is beautiful news. When we know that we're a sinner, when we know that we need grace, we say, thank you, Jesus. But for those with a hard heart who have too much pride to admit that they need grace, it's horrible news. And that's this group, and they killed Jesus. Jesus isn't out to get these guys. We need to keep that in mind. He's not just antagonizing them for the sake of um, being an antagonist. He's pursuing these guys. In large part, these are God's historic covenant chosen people to represent God on the earth. And so he's trying to break through their callous, prideful hearts to jolt them out of their self-delusion that they are basically good people. And so let me give you a list of some of the names that Jesus calls the religious self-righteous. And no, kiddos, you cannot call your siblings names. Jesus was God, okay? So he can call names because he's got a pure heart. You don't. Here we go. This is what Jesus calls the religious Pharisees. Quote, your blind guides, your fools, whitewashed tombs, clean on the inside, but rotting with corpses on the inside, your serpents, your vipers, hypocrites, and children of hell, just to name a few. And then he tells them, you rob from widows, you exploit the poor, you mock God, and your dad is the devil. Any questions, right? Jesus doesn't sound very nice. Well, he's not always nice, but he is always loving. And it's out of love. He needs to wake these guys up, the religious, self-righteous But they don't repent, they don't wake up, they don't admit their sin, they hold their ground. Verse 23 says their voices prevail, they silence the truth, and they kill Jesus. And we do the same thing today. It's called self-righteous religion. And it's not just that certain church tradition, it's just not those wingnuts over there. I think right here, even in Bible preaching, evangelicalism, we can be guilty of this anytime we reduce this book to a list of moral do's and don'ts, wherein we divide a line and say good guys and bad guys, and we're on team A, and you are an outsider. We reduce the gospel of Jesus to moralism and religious self-righteousness. Anytime we um, preach a sermon with 15 good principles to improve your life and become a better husband and to become a better wife and to become a better parent and to become a better Christian. And we forget to preach, oh yeah, Jesus is grace to sinners undeserving like you or me. It's called religious self-righteousness and it's exhausting. Some of you have been brought up in this. Some of you have lived in this. It's exhausting. You can't keep up. Pastor Tim Keller says it, it ends in one of two places, either despair or pride. What he means is self-righteous um, religion uh, will either lead you to believe, man, I can't do it. I've tried hard. I'm not the picture perfect, perfect evangelical husband who does everything right. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not the perfect dad. I can't do it. I can't keep up. I, I guess I'm not a Christian then. I, I guess I'm not among the elect. And you give up and we call it despair. Or on the flip side, you say, you know what? I think I got the hang of this. God's grading on a curve, I'm definitely getting an A because I'm better than those other people. And God must love me because I'm basically a good person. No, it's called pride. And pride is the chief of all sins, the very sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven and the very sin that nailed Jesus to a tree. It's called pride and it's self-righteous religion. Let me ask you to cross-examine your own heart. When you think of Jesus, do you primarily see him as a moral instructor and your leader, or do you see him first as your savior and forgiver of your sins? 
important distinction. For the first 16 years of my life, I thought I was basically a good person that God must approve of me and accept me. I was better than my classmates, better than the other kids in the neighborhood, didn't do the things that they were doing, but I was a sinner nonetheless. And I was confronted with the gospel and realized I needed grace. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter our sin. But here's the good news. Jesus came to forgive sin. Jesus got for, got for himself the reputation of friend of sinners. And so listen to me in this, in this room this morning. If you're a sinner and you know you're a sinner, that's good news. Because Jesus not only wants to be your Savior, he wants to be your friend. And Jesus is with you, and Jesus is for you, and Jesus doesn't want you to be perfect, but he wants you to admit that you're not. And so this morning, would you confess your sin? Would you repent of your self-righteous religion, and would you trust Jesus? Group number one, the religious self-righteous. Let's take a look at the second group. Uh, We don't stop there. Um, We've got the passive people pleasers. Uh, Makes me think of a song. One-eyed, one-horned, flying. Passive people pleasers. Well, recoin that, write a poem, have some cards in the back. Second group, passive people, pleasers. Here's the setup to group number two. Okay, remember the religious self-righteous have arrested Jesus. They have falsely accused Jesus, but they can't execute Jesus because they don't have the political jurisdiction to do so. And so they bring him before the regional Roman ruler, Pilate, who has the authority to kill him. And so now Pilate is going to put him under his own trial. And so let's take a look at group number two, the passive people, pleasers, starting in verse three. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? This is a politically loaded statement, right? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And so Pilate says, Listen, this guy's not a threat. He understands what's going on here. This guy is not going to overthrow Caesar. He's not politically motivated. Uh, Pilate says he's innocent. But the people are adamant. They press him. Verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. The people are applying pressure. Have you ever felt pressure to not stand with Jesus? Have you ever heard the external voices telling you to do the very things that you know God doesn't want you to do? Have you ever felt the pressure of the crowd to not do the very things that you know God wants you to do? The voices of the crowd are pressuring Pilate. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked, whether this man, Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, Here's what happens. Pilate cowardly sees an out, and he takes it. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, and he has the authority to release this man and say, we're not going to try him. But he listens to the voices of the people pressuring him, and he sees uh, a politically expedient out, and he takes it. Oh, He's from the rural Galilean region to the north. Well, they have a leader. Why don't we send him over there? Do you see how he's denying culpability either way? He's not going to release him as an innocent man. He's not going to put his head on a platter. He's going to say, yeah, let that guy decide. I don't want to tick anyone off. He's passive. He's a passive man. This is a leader who is unwilling to stand up for what is true and for what is right because he's a coward and he's passive and he's listening to the voices of the people. And so off goes Jesus. Pilate passes the buck and now it's Herod's turn. Verses 8 through 10. Second trial. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done 
by him. And so Herod's got some interest in Jesus. He's heard of this dude. He knows he's a miracle worker. Um, he doesn't have a real spiritual interest, but he's hoping, you know, maybe Jesus will uh, do a miracle, juggle, uh, perform for me like a circus in the clown, right? So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes, there they are, but he stood by vehemently accusing him. What does Herod do? Does he stand up for what is right? And Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. They joined the club. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, they sent him back to Pilate. What we have here are two passive men who are bouncing an innocent man back and forth like a ping pong ball because neither of them wants to take responsibility. Pilate has said, listen, this dude is innocent. Herod finds no reason to keep him chained up. But Jesus is not free. Why? Why is he still arrested? Because they are listening to the voices of the people. The crowd is pressuring him, and these two leaders are way more concerned about what other people think about them and the voices and the outside influences than they are doing what's right. And the scene culminates with Pilate declaring to the crowd three different times in verses 20 and so on that Jesus is innocent, and three different times they press back, crucify him, and it all comes to a head in verse 23 where it says, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. For the most disappointing words in all of, their, all of the Bible, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And this moment in Scripture is the tipping point. Jesus' fate is now sealed. These two men have cowered and listened to the voices of the crowd. Listen, when you're at the command of other people and what other people think of you, you're an enslaved person. That's Pilate, and that's Howard, and then that's Herod. If you're always afraid of the crowd, you can never follow Jesus. City Light, if your desire for human approval and the applause of men and to be popular and to have Facebook friends and to not offend people is the primary voice that drives you, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus has had to disappoint someone. How many of you have wrestled with this? So many of you. This is every conversation before a baptism Sunday. What are my parents going to think? Are you going to post those pictures on Facebook? What, what are my colleagues going to think? How many of you have wrestled with that very question? Man, if I stand with Jesus, my parents who are really smart are going to think I'm really dumb. If I stand with Jesus, my homosexual friends are going to think I'm a bigot. If I stand with Jesus, my colleagues are going to be awkward around me and my career will not advance. If I stand with Jesus, my professors will think that I'm simple-minded and stupid and archaic and superstitious and all that. I remember when I first became a Christian... Uh, got plugged into kind of my first, you know, Bible preaching evangelical church. And for generations on back to like Europe, my family has been a part of one particular uh, spiritual tradition. And it's not an evangelical tradition. I remember going to my first evangelical church and much of my family was pretty convinced I was in a cult. That's kind of awkward. Like no one grows up and says, oh, yeah, I really want to be the one of the family reunion. And everyone kind of looks at funny like, is he the religious kid that's in a cult now? Yeah, I think so. That's so-and-so's kid. He's in a cult. Like, ah, I'm not in a cult. You <laughs> I remember when I first kind of heard from the Lord, I think you're supposed to go into ministry. And that was a weird thing. I don't come from like a line of pastors. Like that was a whole is weird. But my senior year of college, I'm an accounting student and I've gotten my whole Thing charted out and God kind of interrupts and 
says preach the Bible and all that stuff. And well, now I got to tell people. And uh, I'll never forget talking to one professor um, who had a lot of influence, great man. And as I told him about this, uh, he told me that, you know, I'm a really bright guy and it's just such a shame that I won't be contributing to society. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Just go count your beans, sir. I'll just be over here not contributing. Um, It's hard, right? I respected this guy. I remember taking a family trip and, you know, it's your senior year. Everyone asks you, so what, did you get an in- internship, KPMG or Deloitte? Where are you headed, you know, when you're sitting for the CPA and what you're doing next? Well, I, I think I'm going to intern at a, at a church and do an online seminary program. <laughs> I'm going to be a pastor. And I remember one relative, he, honestly, he's a good man, uh, not dissing him. He just doesn't have a paradigm for this. He said, well, you know, Gavin, I, I, I really think the job market's going to turn around and you shouldn't give up on finding a real job so soon. <laughs> Like, oh gosh. It's not, it's not really like that. The reality is, we all have to ask will their voices prevail in my life? For Pilate and for Herod, they didn't stand with Jesus. They didn't do what was right because the voices of the crowd prevailed. Let me ask you are the voices going to prevail in your life? We all have these voices. Some of them are real. Some of you wrestle with real issues. Some of you will forgo promotions because you're a follower of Jesus. But I think a lot of the voices are even made up in our own head, right? It's the voice of disapproval from people that we've never even talked to. What will my Facebook friends think if they see the picture of this, if I put this verse? My parents must be so disappointed in all of that stuff. And the question we all have to answer is, will the voices prevail? Or will the voice of Jesus, will the voice of truth prevail in our lives? Listen, um, I think when we let our lives be dictated and controlled by the voice and the approval and disapproval of other people, we lose ourselves. When you do that, you become a shell of a man, a shell of a woman, a shell of a child. Jesus isn't your Lord. You're not in control. You are a puppet of the opinion of people around you, and you lose your humanity. It's not even real. Jesus says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Because if no one is disappointed with you, then you're probably not standing for anything. Uh, But let me just speak a word of encouragement to the people pleasers in the room. I know what it's like because I'm one of you. I'm guilty, okay? I'm, I'm haired. I love the applause and approval of men. I hate disappointing people. I wore this awesome blazer just so you would think I'm awesome this morning. Right? We, we all love the approval of people. But let me tell you where Jesus has served me better. In the gospel, I have learned that because Jesus died and rose for me, God the Father approves of me. Because of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose for me, the Father in heaven accepts me perfectly. Because Jesus lived, died, and rose for me, God the Father is pleased with me. And he accepts me. And what the Father's acceptance, approval, and appreciation of me does for me is it allows me to disappoint you. I don't have to live crippled by fear of the people's opinions around me. It frees me up to be human again. It frees me up to follow Jesus. It frees me up to love, follow, serve, worship, and obey Jesus as my Lord and nobody else because I am already loved, accepted, and approved of by the Father. And that's the only approval that our hearts long for. Some of you might be in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, and you're still crippled by the opinions of your parents. Your dad never told you he's proud of you. You've always felt like the black sheep for being a Christian. And you've lived but a shell of existence for the last 20 and 30 years. And I think maybe this morning, Jesus wants to free you up 
Say, listen, because of Jesus, the Father approves of you. And you don't need to let the voices prevail anymore. Lost my place in my notes. Let's just go to point three. <laughs> point three. I want to look at one last person uh, in our text this morning. And uh, it's my favorite one because I think in it, I hope that we all see a reflection of ourselves. Second one is the... Uh, Passive people pleasers. The third and last one I want to look at, it's the shortest one, is the pardoned guilty. The pardoned guilty. Verse 18. It says, But they all cried out, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an, ins- for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. The other gospels tell us that at Passover week, it was a Jewish custom that one prisoner would be released to the people. And uh, this moment in Luke, it tells us that the people demand that Barabbas be that person, the guilty one, the one who did kill, the one who did cause insurrection, and that Jesus, the innocent one, go in his place. Fast forward down to verse 25. We see the conclusion. And so he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. What a picture of the gospel. That the guilty one would go free and the innocent one would take his place. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this detail. It's short. None of them belabor it. But this this picture of a man who had a death sentence over his head who walks away because Jesus stepped in and took his place. I love this because City Light, I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. Jesus is the only innocent one. If any of us underwent the same trial that Jesus went, all of us would rightfully be declared guilty. Jesus is the only innocent one before heaven and on earth. And in Barabbas, we see a picture of ourselves, the guilty ones, the ones that should be condemned to die, the ones who are undeserving, unworthy, being released, and the only innocent righteous one going forth in our place. We are are Barabbas. And Jesus goes forth for us, and he dies for the rebels who need forgiveness. And Jesus goes forth for us, and he dies for the self-righteous religious folks like myself who need a righteousness greater than we can muster up on our own. And Jesus goes forth to the cross in our place, and in that moment of execution, he faces not only the penalty of nails in his body, but the greater consequence of the full wrath of God in that moment. Jesus faces the disapproval of God the Father towards our sins so that we could receive his approval. In that moment, Jesus the Son was abandoned by his heavenly Father so that you and I could be accepted for him. We are Barabbas, and in here we see a picture of Jesus walking in and stepping in in our place for our sins. Listen, this whole transaction happens in the human heart, the Bible says, through faith. This is both a true historical reality and it's a very real personal reality in the life of a believer wherein we put our trust on Jesus Christ. His righteousness is given to us. Our sin is placed on him. And like the Barabbas, we walk away eternally free because Jesus paid our price. And we receive not only his forgiveness, but also his friendship. But let me ask you, are you a Christian? To be a Christian does not mean to be in the good guy category rather than the bad guy category. To be a Christian means that you saw yourself as Barabbas, the guilty one, and Jesus sets you free by believing and trusting in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus, would you do so today? If you have trusted in Jesus, 
can I just encourage you to enjoy the full benefits of what the friendship of Jesus means to us? What that means is that Jesus loves you, Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, and because Jesus took your, your penal place, your, your place on the cross, the penalty for your sins in the kingdom of God, there is no double jeopardy that frees you to confess your sin, to live openly in the light, in community, full of the forgiveness of God, and free of any guilt, shame, and condemnation. To have Jesus as your friend means that because the Father forsook him, you can now um, experience the forgiveness and the, and the acceptance of the Father, and so that you don't need to be insecure anymore. You don't need to live for the approval of other people anymore. City Light, our heart for this church is that it would be a gospel-saturated church, not just good religious moral people, but Jesus people who see ourselves as the sinful Barabbas that Jesus has set free and that we would live fully alive to God. No guilt, no shame, no hiding, no fear of man, but alive to Jesus Christ and living on mission for him. City Light, it, it's the, the trial of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus that allows us to do this. So let's pray that it would be so among us. Jesus, you alone are the innocent one. Uh, you underwent the trial of um, cowardly men on this earth. Uh, you also underwent the trial before the Father, and you were innocent. And nonetheless, you stepped into our place. Father, for everyone in this room, I pray that we would know that, we would trust that, we would see ourselves not as better than anyone, not pointing fingers, but only savoring and treasuring the grace of God that has been given to us so freely. God, if there's anyone in this room that's held up, even right now, by the approval of other people, Maybe there's a situation at work where they know what the right thing to do is, and they're torn. Will they follow you? Will they trust you? Will they act in integrity? Or will the voices prevail? If there's anyone in this room that has been living in fear and hiding because of something their parents did or didn't say 20-plus years ago, in this moment, would they be freed from the fear of man? Holy Spirit, would these words come alive inside of us? Would we live fully alive? Because, Jesus, you have allowed us to do that. And now, Jesus, as we transition into a time of communion, would we, re we be reminded of the costly price of that love? Um, that your love is not just a Roman candle, hot, pink, fluffy kind of love, but it's a gritty love, a bloody love, a, a love that takes responsibility. Unlike Herod and Pilate who passed the buck, Jesus, you were the one who stepped in and took responsibility for a sin not your own. You are the one courageous leader. You are the one who stands for righteousness and justice. You are the one who sacrificed yourself for our good. And so, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table now, uh, would we come with great humility, gladness, and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.